Tonight we finish up the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and we'll be moving on into the New Testament, but we're going to take a break for a few weeks. Don't know how long. Don't know what we'll do in the interim. Still praying about all that. But uh, we're going to take a short break between Malachi and Matthew. Give me a chance to kind of gear up for our Bible scan through the New Testament. The New Testament will be shorter. We'll get through the New Testament in about, oh, 40 weeks or so. It's taken us 61 weeks now to scan through the Old Testament. But that's still pretty fast, don't you think? 61 weeks to cover the Old Testament. And then we'll be starting into Matthew. We'll get plenty of notice uh, we'll be encouraging the whole congregation to get involved and take advantage of it. So all that's ahead of us in the next couple of months. So tonight, though, the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Let me begin by telling you a story. There was a man who was backing his car out of a crowded parking lot when he accidentally hit the car behind him. He got out, he surveyed the damage, and then he took out a piece of paper and he scribbled down a note. He carefully stuck the note on the windshield of the car that he'd struck. Of course, the bystanders all saw this. They assumed that he had written down his name and number, his pertinent insurance information, that he had been honest about his mistake. But when the damaged car's owner returned, he took up the note and he read these words. I've just smashed your car. The people who saw the accident are watching me. They think I'm writing my name and address. I'm not. Good luck. The culprit had made everyone believe that he was something that he was not. Guys, he was a hypocrite. Malachi chapter 1 is the anatomy of a hypocrite. Here's Malachi's message in the words of the old country preacher. Be who you is, because if you ain't who you is then you is who you ain't. The hypocrite is the person who is who they ain't. It's been said a hypocrite is like a straight pin, pointed in one direction, but headed in another. A hypocrite is an actor on the stage. He says his lines, he plays his part. He even musters the expected emotions at just the right time, but he himself is someone else. Remember, Jesus saved his harshest words, not for the blatant sinners, but for the bogus saints. The Pharisees were the hypocrites of Jesus' day. They wore a mask of respectability. Oh, they looked righteous outwardly, but inwardly they were rotten. Guys, far be it from me to call anyone a hypocrite, but I suppose if all of us were sandwiches, there would be a slice of bologna or two In each of us. There are areas in all of our lives where we are not what others think we are, where we are not what we know we should be, when we are not even what we want to be. And Malachi will dissect our motives. He will challenge us to get rid of any hypocritical tendencies. Before we jump into Malachi, and particularly chapter 1, let me provide you an outline. Three issues are addressed in Malachi chapter 1. In verse 2, the people deny God's love. In verse 6, they despise God's name. In verse 7, they defile God's altar. 
And they defile it in three ways. In what they bring to the altar, verse 8. In why they come to the altar, verse 10. And in the way they behave at the altar, verse 13. There's our outline for chapter 1. Verse 1 is an introduction. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The prophet Malachi was part of the post-exile period of Israel's history. When Persia conquered Babylon, the Jews were allowed to return home. And they came back to the land of Israel in three waves of immigration over a period of about 90 years. In 536 B.C., a governor by the name of Zerubbabel returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah returned with him to encourage Zerubbabel in the work. In 458 B.C., Ezra the priest led a second homecoming. He reestablished the authority of the scriptures in the land. In addition, he resurrected the role of the priesthood. You might say Ezra rebuilt the people. And in 444 B.C., a man named Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the city's walls. Nehemiah, at the request of the Persian king Artaxerxes, was commissioned to come and to rebuild these city's walls. And despite fierce opposition, with a sword in one hand and with a shovel in the other, the men under Nehemiah's command were able to complete rebuilding the city's walls. Twelve years after arriving in Jerusalem, Nehemiah returned to Persia as he said he would to report to King Artaxerxes on the status of the walls. And you've heard the old expression, while the cat's away, the mice will play. And that is exactly what happened to the Jews. During Nehemiah's trip home to Persia, the Jews who had left behind began to sin. As Nehemiah went back to a pagan land, the Jews acted like pagans. They ignored God. They neglected the temple and they forgot the scriptures. They came back to the land only to turn their backs on the Lord. How tragic. Nehemiah eventually returned and he served a second term as governor. But in his year-long absence, God raised up the prophet Malachi to confront the people's sin and to call them to repentance. Malachi paved the way for Nehemiah's return and Nehemiah initiated reforms to correct the sins that Malachi had exposed. Nehemiah chapter 13, you might want to read it when you get home, is a good commentary on the book of Malachi. Malachi, though, begins, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? The Jews had denied God's love for them. Have you loved us, they say. How have you loved us? Guys, when you fall away from the Lord, sin creates a smog, a haze that obscures your view. Truths you once held dear, truths that were once so vivid and so clear to you suddenly become obscure. You see, for a hypocrite to harden his or her heart, they first have to deny God's love. You see, the love of Jesus is so compelling. It's so strong, it's so alluring, it's so captivating that a person preoccupied with his love will always stay close to God's side. 
Hey, if you don't want to draw close to Jesus, then you first have to deny and stay away from his irresistible love. That's what the Jews were doing. They were denying that God even loved them. God responds to their accusation. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Here's proof of God's love for Israel. He chose Jacob over Esau. Understand, when God says that he hates Esau, he doesn't intend to be taken literally. This is a form of Hebrew speech. The Hebrews would use exaggeration to hammer home important points. A good example of it is Luke chapter 14, verse 26. There Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, obviously, Jesus never meant to be taken literally. In other scriptures, we're exhorted to honor our parents and to love our brother. But here Jesus exaggerates to make his point. He's in essence saying our love for God needs to be so strong, so passionate that it would make our natural affections toward our parents and siblings look like hate in comparison. God loved Esau and the Edomites, never doubt that. But he loved Jacob and his descendants too with a special love. In fact, he chose Jacob for special status and special privilege. And God's love for Israel was so overwhelming that it made his love for Esau look like hate. Of course, the question arises, why did God choose Jacob over Esau? And we have no idea. There's no answer. It is a mystery. It is hidden away in the wisdom and sovereignty of God. It reminds me of the story. A man approached Griffith Thomas one day with the same basic question. He says, the Bible says God hates Esau. What gives with that? The wise pastor answered, he says, I've got a problem more perplexing than God hates Esau. The Bible also says God loves Jacob. (laughs) The real brain buster, if you want to know, is not that God hates an evil person like Esau, but that he loves an evil person like Jacob or any other sinner for that matter. Jacob didn't deserve God's love any more than Esau. You remember Jacob? He was a thief. He was a liar. He was a dirty double crosser. And yet God chose him anyway. The only explanation for God choosing Jacob or you or me or any of us is his amazing grace. Why God has chosen you and me is also a mystery. We don't deserve his grace. Yet in Christ... We too have been given special status and spiritual privilege and incredible blessing. None of us could ever stand up and say, how has God loved me? Oh, man. He has done so much for us. His grace has been so outstanding. Let me suggest to you, God's grace needs to be embraced, not questioned. But not only did the Hebrews deny God's love, Notice they also despised God's name. In verse 6, God asks, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. 
If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. You see, the Jews claimed a relationship with God. He's their father, they say. He's their master. But in practice, there was no substance to that relationship. It was a kinship in name only. It's like a wife taking her husband's name and then not living up to the terms of the marriage. And by treating the name so flippantly, she was in essence despising her husband's name. You see, to use the terms father, to use the terms master, implies that you're a respectful son. It implies that you're an obedient servant. And the Jews were neither. They were spiritual name droppers, you might say. But Malachi says that a name dropper is actually a name despiser. The same mistake can be made, though, by followers of Jesus. You remember in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus warned his followers that there will be people who will lay claim to a relationship that they don't possess. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? The term Lord also implies a relationship. For Jesus to be Lord, I must be his subject. If he's my Lord, then I'm no longer the captain of my own ship. He's running the show. So often we want God, though, on our own terms. Guys, that's not the way it works. A.W. Tozer once wrote, It's not that people don't want God. It's that people have things they want more than God. We are determined to have what we want most. The question we need to ask ourselves is, what is it that we want most tonight? Here's a poem. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Are you settling tonight for $3 worth of God? Hey, I want you to understand, God doesn't come in small quantities. He only comes in bulk. If Jesus is not Lord of all, then he is not Lord at all. In verse 7, God voices his third complaint against these people. They've denied his love. They've despised his name. Now they have defiled his altar. They've trivialized the things of God. They have watered down their worship. They've made a mockery out of ministry. The smokestack of religion rose high off their deck. But there was no fire down in the belly of the ship. The Lord says to Israel, You are... Offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. They offered worship to God, but they begrudged the time and effort that it required. You know, it's been said of our society, we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. What a sad indictment. Seldom are people really serious about what they believe. 
You see, the Jews played at religion. And they lacked a passion, a fire for God. And they defiled God's altar. They defiled their worship in three ways. By what they brought to God. By why they came to God. And by the way they behaved before God. The what, the why, and the way of their worship was all twisted and wrong. God asked the Jews in verse 8, And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? The law required that they sacrifice to God the best of their flocks. But instead, the Jews were giving to God their crippled and their diseased. In other words, they were giving to God their leftovers. Hey, that might be okay if you were making sacrifices to Roy Barnes. Take that down to your governor, he says. But hey, God's not going to accept your leftovers. Are we guilty of the same, guys? We send old clothes we would never be caught dead in to the Salvation Army and then pat ourselves on the back for making such sacrifices. Or we'll spend all night pouring over the newspaper or reading some novel or watching television. Then right before we get to bed, we pick up our Bible and we read a verse or two. Or we do what we want six days out of the week. And then we begrudge the thought of giving to God an hour on Sundays. Or we think nothing of dropping a hundred bucks for concert tickets for that new hot band that's in town. And yet we think we're being real generous when we slip that $5 bill into the offering box as we leave on Sundays. Are we giving to God our leftovers? The leftovers of our time, our talents, our energies, our efforts, our money? Are we tossing the God of the universe a few crumbs here and there? Giving to Him the diseased of our flock? God wants our very best. You know that. I know that. He wants our first fruits. God wants the cream of the crop. God wants the best of the flock. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24, David said, Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. I won't do that. Guys, the only true sacrifice is a sacrifice that costs us. When was the last time you gave such a sacrifice? They defiled God's altar by what they brought. They brought him the leftovers. And then they defiled it by the way they came. In verse 10, God asks, Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. You see, these temple worshipers were just going through the motions. Everyone knew it. But nobody had the guts to close down the doors and shut down the charade. It sounds harsh, but it's so true. There are churches today who are actually doing the kingdom of God a disservice. They would be better off shutting down their doors, disbanding their services. God no longer accepts their worship anyway. It's a hypocrisy. Their sham service brings God no pleasure. The third way they defiled God's altar 
is by the way they came. Verse 11 tells us that God's name will be great among the Gentiles, but among his own people, the Jews. He says in verse 12, you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. They had come to view their worship and their service to God with disdain. They had begun to see it as a drudgery, as a burden, as a duty rather than a joy. In their own words, oh, what a weariness. Have you ever caught yourself saying, oh, no, another Sunday I gotta get up, get out of bed, I gotta go to church. It's my morning to sing in the worship team. And then you come down here and you plaster a fake smile on your face and you sing the songs, you know, praise God. God's disgusted. Or man, I wish I could get out of teaching Sunday school today. Man, those little snotty-nosed brats, I just can't take them today. And then you come down here and plaster that smile. God loves you, children. Red and yellow, black and white, they're all precious in His sight. (laughs) Or man, it's my turn to mow the grass, or to do the nursery this morning, or to usher this morning. Can't they find someone else? The Jews had forgotten That it is such a joy, such a privilege, such an honor to be able to serve the Lord. Don't you forget that. Don't ever turn a drudgery. Don't ever turn what is a joy into a drudgery. What is an honor into something you despise or disdain. Remember what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. God loves a cheerful giver. Literally in the Greek, it's God loves a hilarious giver. Worshiping and serving God are a grand delight. They're a thrill. They are a joy. When they're not, it's time to find out what is the problem with me. D.L. Moody once said, I may get tired in the work, but I never get tired of the work. That's how I feel about it. Serving God is so wonderful. It's such a joy. It can never get old. It can never get boring. If it does, there's a problem with me, not with the work, not with the privilege God's given us. Verse 14 sums up Malachi chapter 1. But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. The fear of the Lord and our respect of the Lord is demonstrated by how we love him and how we worship him. The more we respect him, the more intense and sincere our worship will be. Now, you've heard the Budweiser commercial. This Bud's for you. Well, in chapter 2, we begin, Oh, now... O priests, this commandment is for you. For the priests of Judah were intoxicated with self-centeredness. But God is about to sober them up. 
God begins by recounting the covenant he made with Levi. You remember the Jewish priesthood was comprised of Levi's descendants. They all wore Levi jeans, you might say. Verse 6 says of Levi, The law was in his mouth. He walked with me and turned many away from iniquity. But the sons were nothing like the father. Notice verse 7. The lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. The Jews were not true ministers. They had corrupted true ministry. Read through chapter 2 and you will find six marks of a true minister. Verse 2, he gives glory to God. Verse 5, he fears God. Verse 6, he speaks the truth of God. He shows the fairness of God and he walks with God. Verse 7, he teaches the word of God. Find these marks in a minister and you have found a true man of God. Because the truth of God's law had not been taught, because it had been watered down, a sin had been committed among the people of Israel. Chapter 2, verse 11 explains, Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves, namely the institution of marriage. Notice, first of all, that marriage is an institution that God loves. God created marriage. It was his idea. After everything that God created, he said that it was good, and that included marriage. God considers marriage holy and sacred and special, and so should we. This is why living together, cohabitating, shacking up, whatever you want to call it, is a lesser relationship than the higher stakes union of marriage. Short of marriage, yours is a cheaper, inferior commitment. It's more an expression of reservation rather than commitment and determination. The Jews of Malachi's day had marred marriage in two ways. First, they had married unbelievers. And second, they had practiced unbiblical divorce. Verse 11 says of Judah, He has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now understand, when God forbid the Jews from marrying other races... He wasn't concerned about racial purity. He was concerned about spiritual purity. In fact, if you read Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus, you'll find that it contains racially mixed blood. Rahab, a descendant or an ancestor of Jesus, was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. The reason God told the Jews not to marry foreign women was that he didn't want them to drag their idolatry along with them. He wanted to keep the people spiritually pure. You see, God knew the power of marriage. He knew that a husband, a wife, has a tremendous influence on their spouse, for better or for worse. 
God knew it was a short jump, really, from climbing into bed with an idolater and then bowing down before their idol. He said, don't marry foreign women because he didn't want them worshiping their foreign gods. You know, if you want a happy, harmonious home, then you need to be careful to marry only a true believer in Jesus Christ. Marry an unbeliever and your home will turn into a battleground. Olivia Langdon was raised in a Christian home and she had a vibrant faith in God. That is, before she married the famous author Mark Twain. Of course, when she married him, she had high hopes of converting him to Christianity. And at first, he seemed interested in her faith. In fact, he even read the Bible with her. But over time, he pulled her away from God. He even destroyed Olivia's faith. And at the end of her life, when she was in pain, when she was in agony... Mark Twain encouraged her. He said, Livy, if it comforts you to lean on the Christian faith, do so. But Olivia answered, I can't, for I haven't any faith any longer. You see, by that point, it was all too late. Guys, I'm telling you, I promise you, I could fill several milk jugs full of the tears that have been shed in my office by people who chose to ignore the Scriptures and marry an unbeliever. You young people, you need to pay attention. As you choose a mate over the next few years, as you look and as you ask God, who do you want me to marry? Make sure that you don't compromise in this area. You don't want to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. You want to marry someone who is a true on fire, committed believer in Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians chapter four, chapter six, verse fourteen. Paul said to the Corinthians then and to us now, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Be careful who you marry. Then be careful how you treat the person that you marry. For God's second complaint about marriage is expressed in verse fourteen. He says, The Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Divorce had broken their covenant, the marriage vow that they had taken. Verse 13 says that they made their offering to God, but they didn't understand why he refused to accept it. And you see, the answer was their hypocrisy at home. For on the one hand, they are violating their vow that they've taken to God and to their spouse. And yet they expect God to just ignore it and answer their prayers like nothing's wrong. Come on, get real. Several years ago, an article appeared in the Atlanta Constitution entitled, Bless This Divorce, Couples Seal Separation in Church. It described how a couple at the First Christian Church in Decatur wanted to end their marriage in a special church service. The pastor explained, since both are members of this congregation, it seems appropriate to ask God to approve the ending of the marriage. It seems appropriate to ask God to do something that His Word condemns? How ludicrous. And yet that was the exact attitude that the people of Malachi's day had adopted. 
Verses 15 and 16 are two of the most vital verses on marriage in the Bible. Malachi says, But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? You see, more than a legal contract, more than a social institution, more than a domestic arrangement or even a romantic expression, first and foremost, marriage is a spiritual union. In a mysterious, spiritual way, marriage binds two people and makes them one. And why this oneness, you might ask? Verse 15, and why one? For he seeks godly offspring. The best way to ensure well-adjusted, emotionally healthy, spiritually solid kids is to give them two parents who are united and committed and growing together in a loving relationship. The best way to damage those kids, to wound them deeply, is to rip apart their parents. I can show you report after report that documents the devastating and lingering effects of divorce on the lives of children. God seeks godly offspring. And if for no other reason than the kids, a husband and wife needs to keep their marriage intact, work through their problems, and make their marriage work. Verse 16 says, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. You know, you don't normally think of a divorce as a violent act. But it is like ripping apart a garment. Have you noticed when you tear a shirt, it's not a nice clean cut that can be neatly sewn back together? The tear leaves jagged edges, ragged edges. Oh, you might patch it. You might repair it the best you can, but it's never like new. There's always a scar on that shirt. And the same is true with a divorce. A nasty scar is always there. I heard another report recently where divorcees were asked, if they had to do it over again, would they get divorced? And the overwhelming answer was no. They would have worked at it a little longer, fought for it a little harder, found a way to make it work. In the midst of World War II, Winston Churchill told the British people, wars are not won by evacuation. And guys, the same can be said for new good marriages. Hey, do it for yourself. Do it for your kids. Do it for the God you say you love and serve. Remember the Lord God of Israel hates divorce. I'm not trying to bring condemnation on those of you who have been divorced. I'm trying to spare some of you the awful pain that could incur if you don't work through those problems, if you don't fight for your marriage, if you don't work at it, a happy home. Remember, God hates divorce and for good reasons. Here's a list of some final pronouncements. Last words uttered before death. You can make it easy. The train isn't coming that fast. Here's another final word. Give me a match. I think my gas tank is empty. Let's see if it's loaded. 
Honey, these biscuits are hard as a rock. (laughs) Step on it. We're only going 75. The last words before death. Just watch me dive off that bridge. And finally, what? Your mother's going to stay a whole month? Last words before the end. Well, Malachi is also an example of some final pronouncements. It's the last words of the Old Testament. In between Malachi and Matthew, we have what the scholars refer to as 400 silent years. The Babylonian Talmud, a Jewish commentary on the scriptures, states, Malachi was last written and the spirit departed. Malachi was the last word that God would speak to Israel before sending his living word, Jesus Christ. That's why this book is so important. It's the message God wanted ringing in the ears of his people for the next four centuries. He gave them 400 years to chew on this book. These are the words that God used to prepare his people for the coming of his son, particularly Chapters 3 and 4. These are the final words of the Old Testament, and they begin. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. It reminds me of the young preacher who was preaching his very first sermon. And he chose as his text, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, he is coming. He had been told in seminary that in the midst of his talk, if he ever got a loss for words, that he could always just repeat his text. You know, it would just always fit right back in. Well, this was a tough sermon, his first sermon. And on three different occasions, he went blank and he shouted out, Behold, he is coming. On the third time, he drew that blank that happens sometimes and he slammed his fist down the pulpit and he he shouted out his text, Behold, he is coming. But in doing so, he lost his balance. And he fell over the side of the platform into the lap of a little old lady sitting on the front row. He jumped up and he began to apologize profusely. And finally, the old gal told him, said, Sonny, don't worry about it. It was my fault. You told me three times you were coming. God closes the Old Testament with a clear warning that the Lord is coming. God himself is about to pay planet Earth a visit. The first part of verse 1 is quoted in Matthew chapter 11 verse 10 and applied to the ministry of John the Baptist. John was the messenger who prepared the way for Jesus. Verse 2 tells us what the Lord will do when he comes. For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. Hey, walk with Jesus and he'll cleanse you of sin. He'll purify you. A refiner heats up the metal until the slag and sludge rise to the surface. Then he skims it off and he repeats the process over and over to gain a greater purity. And Jesus does the same in our lives. He'll use the heat of circumstance to cause the impurities of our lives to bubble up to the surface. And then he skims them off. Do you know how the refiner knows when the process is complete? It's when he can look into the metal and see the reflection of his face in the metal. And that's what Jesus is after in us. He's trying to produce in us his likeness. 
Verse 6 is important. God says, For I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. God is immutable. He never changes. Guys, in a world where there is only one, where the only one thing that is certain is that nothing is really certain, what a comfort it is to know that God is faithful and changeless. God is the anchor in a sea of constant flux. But don't get the wrong idea. God is immutable, but that doesn't mean he's immobile. His standards and principles never change. His motive never changes. His faithfulness never changes. His character never changes. But God is quick to change his means and methods when necessary. He's always up to a new work. Here's a good way to put it. God is timeless, but he is also very timely. His motives are forever changeless, but his methods are forever changing. Guys, when you wake up and find a distance between you and God, always remember it's not God who has left. It's you. This is why Malachi writes in verse 7, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But notice what the Jews ask. In what way shall we return? You know, they don't even know there's a problem in their relationship with God. I find that true of a lot of people. They drift so far from the Lord. They become so dull and dense in their sensitivities. They become oblivious to the gap that's grown between them and God. They think all is fine while God has some issues. And you know, God might have some issues with you tonight. We need to beware because we can become blind to our own backsliding. God says in verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. Hey, robbing God, looting from the Lord, stealing from the Savior, <laughs> that just sounds like a serious offense. When I think of robbing God, I think of Judas Iscariot. I mean, that's how low you go. The treasurer of the disciples. And now he stole, he skimmed off the coffers that were supporting the work of the ministry and the disciples. I mean, how low can you go to skim money out of Jesus' purse? But there are people in this room tonight who are no different from Judas in that they too have stolen from God. They have withheld their tithes and their offerings. Understand, in the Old Testament, the tithe was not the people's to give. It literally belonged to the Lord. Their stinginess in not giving their tithe didn't mean that they were simply not giving it meant that they were stealing from God something that really belonged to him in the first place. Understand the term tithe means tenth. When Abraham went out to meet the high priest, he gave him a tenth of his spoils. Of course, the Mosaic law called for a number of tithes, which added up to about 33% of a person's income. And the question always comes up, are New Testament saints obligated to tithe? And the answer to that is a conditional no. And here's what I mean by that. Just as we are free from old covenant obligations, 
like feast days and fasts and sacrifices, we're also under no command to tithe. But understand, tithing predated the law of Moses. In fact, it originated not with Moses, the representative of the law, but rather with Abraham, who is the father of those who believe. That's you and me. And the New Testament is clear. Abraham is supposed to be our example. His life shows us what faith looks like. To me, it is impossible to say that you trust God with your life if you don't trust him enough with your money to give him a 10% tithe. In medieval times, whole armies were converted to Christianity. But often when their soldiers were baptized, they kept their sword hand out of the water as they were baptized. In doing so, later they felt justified in wielding their sword as indiscriminately, as brutally as ever. That was the one part of them that hadn't been baptized. Well, I think in modern times, there are a lot of Christians who get baptized holding their wallet up out of the water, you know. That's the one part of their life that they are leaving uncommitted, that's not yet been dedicated to God. They're willing to trust God with all other areas of their life, but not with their money. In Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said to his followers, Give, and it will be given to you. Jesus does tell us. He commands us to give. And according to a man of faith like Abraham, 10% is a good pattern. But we need to let the Holy Spirit lead us and guide us. And I'm going to trust He'll lead and guide you in your giving. In fact, why should I restrict you to 10%? The the Lord may lead you to give more. Verse 10 tells us why we should tithe. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And of course, God's house was the temple. And the needs of the temple were paid for by the people's tithes. Likewise, your tithes support the ministry of the church. Your tithes go to pay the bills. Your tithes go to feed the pastors. One reason the tithe is to get out the gospel. It's to help us pay our bills. It's to make sure the pastors go hung, don't go hungry. And we appreciate your tithes. But there's another reason as well. Verse 10. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out on you such blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Here's another reason you should tithe. This is the only place in the Bible where God challenges us to try him and to test him. Often we are warned in the Bible not to presume on God's mercies, but here he dares us to tithe. He says, you just tithe and see if the windows of heaven don't open up and pour blessing out upon your life. Once a well-known philanthropist was asked, how is it you give away so much, yet you have so much left? He answered, I shovel out and God shovels in. And God has a bigger shovel than I do. Here's a little jingle to remember. A man there was and they called him mad. The more he gave, the more he had. And you'll find that to be true. If you'll dare, if you'll take this dare from God and if you'll begin to tithe. God dares you. Try to outgive me. And I'll show you that you can't.
Verse 14 brings up another of God's complaints against His people. They're saying, it is vain to serve God. In other words, it just doesn't pay to serve the Lord. Hey, I've got to admit, there's been times when I've wondered. You work for the Lord, you put in the time and the energy and the effort, the blood, the sweat and the tears, and you look around and you see so very few tangible results to show for your efforts. And you wonder, Lord, does it really pay to serve you? But Malachi answers their question in verse 16. He mentions a book of remembrance. And he tells us that this book of remembrance records the name of every faithful servant of God. Guys, you need to understand that what you do for the Lord may never be seen by men. You may never get a pat on the back from your pastor. It may never be recalled by a person on earth. It may escape all of the history books. You may never even get in as a footnote. But God writes down your good deeds, your work for Him in His book of remembrance. And they are recorded and preserved in heaven for all eternity. Does it pay to serve the Lord? It will one day. The world may despise you, but in verse 17, God says, They shall be mine on the day that I make them my jewels and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. God cherishes his servants. They are his priceless jewels. Here is the commercial that's playing on television these days in heaven. You see this spinning globe and then the words, Earth cost a couple of tons of dirt. Next, you see the stars and the galaxies and the lightning bolts. And then the words, the heavens cost a few amps of electricity. And then you see the wonders of nature and the words, fauna and flora cost a little creativity. But then you see your face and you see my face. And then the words, my jewels Cost, priceless. That's how God feels about his servants. Verse 18 sums it up. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. In response to the Jews, one day it'll be obvious to all that it pays to serve the Lord. Chapter 4 is a continuation of chapter 3. And the question, does it pay to serve the Lord? And God's answer is, well, wait till payday. You'll see. When Jesus returns, everyone will know. And chapter 4 focuses on the second coming of Jesus Christ. Here's the forecast for the wicked. Verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up says the Lord of hosts. Not a good forecast if you're not walking with the Lord. But here's the forecast for the righteous, verse 2. But to you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. I'm already on my way, man. Just look at that. You shall trample the wicked. For they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this. What a great forecast for those who fear the Lord. 
Notice in the Old Testament, Jesus is called the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness. But in the New Testament, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, he is called the bright and morning star. And here's the difference. New Testament believers are looking for Jesus to rapture the church. We view him as the morning star. That's the star that is seen just before the dawning of a new day. And the rapture of the church is the event that takes place just before the dawn of God's coming kingdom. But the Old Testament was written to the Jews. They were looking for his second coming after the great tribulation, after the period of judgment, after the rapture of the church, when Jesus will appear in judgment as the full blaze, the hot noonday sun of righteousness. Jesus will appear to burn up his enemies and to bless his people Israel. In verse 5, God tells us that before the second coming of Jesus, Elijah will make a comeback appearance on the earth. And every year at Passover, the Jews will set a place at the table in anticipation for Elijah to come and return and join them for dinner. Revelation 11 records the ministry of two witnesses who will appear on earth in the midst of the great tribulation. They're given miraculous powers. In fact, they're able to cause drought and call call fire down from heaven, which, if you remember, were characteristics of Elijah's ministry, I believe, that one of those two witnesses will be none other than Elijah, and his coming will fulfill this prophecy here in Malachi. Note the last word of the Old Testament. Verse 6. What's the last word? Curse. You see, that's what the law produced, wasn't it? A curse. But the last word in the New Testament is grace. Revelation 22 verse 21 reads, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The law of Moses, the Old Testament, left mankind under sin's curse. But the cross of Jesus Christ brings us into the grace of God. Galatians 3 verse 13 tells us that on the cross, Christ became a curse for us so that we now could receive the blessings of God. Today, God's word to you and me is not a curse, but grace. Father, thank you for this wonderful book. Lord, may it flush out any hypocrisy in our hearts. May it challenge us, Lord, if we've been guilty of robbing you, Help us, Lord, to dare to take you at your word. To give you the tithe that you've required, that you deserve. And help us not be amazed, Lord, when you pour out the windows of heaven, blessing untold upon our lives. Lord, help us to be men and women of faith. Help us to trust in you. For we know that when you rise in our hearts, you do bring healing in your wings. And I pray, Lord, that you'll bring healing to our hearts tonight as we meditate on these things. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.